0: Steve Ledger
3: stunning goal, cracking start for Bournemouth, and it's their longest serving player who's put them in a position of prominence.
1: Well, what a finish this is, Rob. <laughs> the big fella there, the delight on his face absolutely incredible wearing his favourite number 10 shirt.
2: Hola que tal, and a very warm welcome to another episode of Back of the Net, the
1: AFC Bournemouth podcast with me, Sean Barker. And me, Sam Davis. And I'm glad you said warm welcome, Sean, as this weekend in Bournemouth and Paul, it's been a scorcher. Oh Sam let me guess you guys for the last couple of days what you've been down to the beach I bet you couldn't see the
2: sand because all your towels are out you're all buying your ice creams oh you enjoy those couple of days of sunshine here in New Zealand yeah we've had a really good bit of weather actually what is it seven months now I think pretty much and I'm still in shorts
1: and t-shirt whatever stop bragging Sean just because we're Premier League for another year and we gained our first point in what has felt like an eternity don't get all cocky don't get cocky? Wow, you definitely
2: won't want to hear about the incredible interview I put together with the one and
1: only Steve Fletcher. What? Big Fletch? Super Fletch? The legend Fletch? The man I'd most like to have a hug from? Oh, I'd feel so safe. Steve Fletcher is on back of the net. Yes, he is, Sammy. We have an
2: extended interview with the big'un on today's show, as well as the usual features
1: you know and love. Wow. Well, I'm not sure I trust you, Sean. Big flesh on back of the net. I think I'll only believe it as soon as I hear it mentioned on the coming up on back of the net bit. So coming up on back of the net. No, I lieth not. In this
2: week's episode, we have got my interview with Cherry's hero, Steve Fletcher. In this part one, we discuss the playing years of the big man and talk about what it was like signing as a young player to a new club so far from home. The tough first couple of seasons where Fletch would get abuse from home fans telling him to leave. The great escape in 95, which Fletch says changed and made his career. His first and only hat-trick 15 years in the making as well of course as that goal against grimsby
1: man i am looking forward to that good work sean i don't think you're going to be able to top that interview talk about going out with a bang but you do realize that next week's show is the end of the season show and not this one right I do, Sam, and yes, I can top it off, as next week Fletch will be
2: back for another chat as we go through part two of the story of his cherry's life. That time we then focus on his retirement and non-playing years. It cannot
1: be missed. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that, just like I'm looking forward to the fan thoughts as we hear your opinions and puns on our weekend draw with the baggies as well as deconstructing the game ourselves too. We'll also be catching up with the latest from
2: Dean Court as I don my shirt and tie and head over to the newsroom to bring us the latest
1: goings on with AFC Bournemouth. And as well as this, we've got another supporter profile this week. And today it comes from nine year old Cherries fan Ben Phillips, the voice of the main stand. And if you sit in the family area near the scoreboard, you'll know what I mean.
2: Plus, as always, we take a trip down memory lane as we have another Do You Remember where we all try to remember another former Cherries
1: player. Will you guess it this week? Mm. We'll also be previewing our last match of the season on Sunday against the might of Manchester United as Cherries travel to Old Trafford to try to secure what would be our only double of the season.
2: That's right, it's a lot coming up on the show today, but first bit of uh, housework to go through. I am wearing, of course, the 1998 Wembley home shirt, resplendent with number 10 Fletcher on the back. And Sam, what about
1: you? If you're a regular Back of the Net listener, you'll probably know what I'm wearing right now. And ding, 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 you're right, it's the Cherry's home shirt. Ooh, lavender. Sam, you washed it. Good man. Right, let's
2: rewind back to Saturday now as Cherries drew 1-1 with West Brom at Dean Court and we'll hear your opinions from the game soon but first, here are the thoughts of Lawrence Mora from Talk Sports.
3: Yeah, finished Bournemouth 1, West Brom 1 and Bournemouth at the moment uh, doing a lap of honour all the players, all the coaching staff, all the kids on a successful maiden uh, Premier League season for their club it was entertaining stuff all afternoon quite honestly Rondon opened the scoring his ninth of the season heading home Johnny Evans, pinpoint cross on 16 minutes for Albion and then Albion's Gardner saw his penalty saved just before half time by Boric and at that point there would be little complaints from the home side if they had been 2-0 down but second half the cherries were a different team suddenly that intensity and buzz was back about them on 82 minutes they got their rewards shortly after eddie howard shifted his team to three at the back it was a long throw into the box and accidentally flicked on by jacob and there was matt ritchie stealing into the back post to head home from a few yards out we had dawson smashing the ball against the post in a frenzied finish and the final game at the Vitality Stadium of a maiden Premier League season ends in a draw. Bournemouth 1, West Brom 1.
4: Hi, it's Dave, aka okay, Paisley Painter. Last game of the season.
3: Bit of a damp squib, really. Army um, and Peel has turned up and parked the bus for uh, 80 minutes, pretty much.
4: Got a lucky header. But I have to say that is probably the penalty save saved of the season. And probably the best one I've ever seen in life. Incredible. He redeemed himself for uh, the earlier faux pas, should we say, with a back pass. But anyway, it's one all. We get a point. It's genuine safety and all that kind of stuff. But Mr. Pulis, I have to say, that is probably the worst performance for a team that have got nothing to play for ever in the history of the
0: world. Thank you very much and good night. See you next season. Bye.
5: Hello, my name's Joe and I'm going to be reporting on the Bournemouth-West Brom match. I thought we were... Average the whole game as we had 69% possession but we didn't take any of our chances or really get any chances Boric made an amazing save to save their penalty and he did an amazing save to stop the rebound when King and Wilson came on they looked a better partnership than Grabbing and Afobi and I I thought they could have won it but we just didn't get the service into him. Of all the goals we could have scored, we scored a header. But we scored a long throw from Cook and Richie headed it in. But it was, at least we didn't lose on our final home game of our first season in the Premier League. And hopefully we can beat Man United next week.
4: Big T from Southbourne. That was turgid, boring, terrible. I know we're supposed to be rejoicing that we've stayed up, but that was just—that was just. I haven't even got a gag. I haven't we've got a gag out of it. Apart from Matt Ritchie scoring, what he did—that's it. Eddie Al's already done that one?
1: So thank you to Big T, Joe Wright, and also to Paisley Painter, David, for their thoughts on the West Bromwich Albion game. It was a match between two sides safe from relegation, and a mistake from Cherry's goalkeeper, Artur Boric, was punished when Solomon Rondon headed home in the first half. But then later on, Boric saved Craig Gardner's penalty before halftime, and Matt Ritchie drew the hosts' level with a close-range header. Craig Dawson for West Brom. He hit the post later on as the Baggies pressed for a winner. However, the game finished 1 all, and the draw meant that Bournemouth ended up without a win in four games, while West Brom's last victory came against Manchester United eight games ago. So, there were four changes ahead of this game, Sean. Were you surprised when the team lineup was announced?
2: Yeah, a little bit. I did think we were going to see Wilson and Afobe get a run out, but instead there were, well, four changes. Afobe came in for Wilson, Stanislas in for Richie, Gradle came back in for Puey, and Graben came in for King. So the four changes saw Graben and Afobe up the top. Um, I did find it a little bit odd that Afobe appeared to be playing behind Graben with Graben as the top striker but maybe this was the experimenting Eddie was talking about but yeah I was a little bit surprised by some of the changes made
1: yeah and West Brom started off sort of quite well and put a lot of early pressure on us didn't they
2: Yeah, I think obviously they've been watching our previous games and, you know, we have been shipping a lot of early goals and for a Pulis side, they like to score early and then they like to try and defend. So in the first couple of minutes, actually, I think first two minutes, especially they were pretty much all over us and they had that shot, which I think was going wide to Boric's right. And then it hit one of their strikers and almost went in the opposite corner. So they had a chance pretty early on. But what was it, 15, 16 minutes when they hit the back of the net?
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, that's, well, we've all seen the goal on the highlights and um, Arta Boric is taking a little bit of stick for that. But it ended up with a Salomon Rondon header. Uh, The cross was uh, from Johnny Evans and, you know, it was a very good header. But where do you think the mistakes lie with that goal, Sean? Well, I don't necessarily think it lies with Boric and...
2: It's funny how football's changed because, you know, back in the day, I mean, I've been a goalkeeper a long time. And back in the day, you would have dreamed of playing short like they do these days. I mean, if you had a defender one-on-one with a striker, you would never give them the ball. I mean, these days now, especially our team where we, we rely on being confident enough to give it to a player that's got a player on them on the basis of that they can get it past them and we're away... Um you know, we see it a lot. We play from the back and we, we're we trying to draw West Brom out. We know West Brom are going to sit really deep and they're going to make it really tight and compact. So we have to try at all times to stretch them. Now, if we're starting with a ball on our own six-yard line, it's the best place to try and stretch them. So it makes total sense. As a goalkeeper, I can tell you, it's pretty stressful these days with taking a goal kick. It used to be you put it down, line up, and you pump it to halfway. You've constantly, you're looking at, well, who do I give it to? And if I give it to him, am I going to have to get it back? And where else do I go to? And where are my options? It's You have to be so quick thinking. So he plays it to Sermon. Sermon gives it back to him, and it's not a great pass back. He immediately is closed down by uh, one, possibly two. I think it was two West Brom players. So all he can do is clear it. Now, it wasn't the best clearance in the world. Yes, okay, given it wasn't a great clearance. But he's under pressure, and a pressure that is pretty hard to deal with. And it's still, there's plenty of times for us to win that ball back and to stop the ball getting to Rondon's head. You know, we know they're going to be looking for him on the head. And for me, the... Bigger mistake was giving Johnny Evans so much space and time to control it, take a step and then whip that cross in. That's the biggest problem I've got.
1: So on 26 minutes, there was Artur Boric who did manage to save from Craig Gardner. Now, that was um, an assist by Darren Fletcher. I think he had a left-footed shot from outside the box, but he got down well for that, Sean, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh,
2: Harry Arda got nutmegged um, and then Gardner, it's a good shot into the bottom corner. Boric's position well, got down early and yeah, just fingertips to tip it wide. So that was a really, really great save.
1: So we had a corner. Uh, I think it was uh, Charlie Daniel. Uh, sorry, but West Brom had a corner. It was Charlie Daniels who conceded it. He, um, he made a sort of last ditch challenge, sort of dived in as he did, but he made contact with the ball. Um, and then West Brom had a corner. So talk us through that. Ah, uh, yeah. So this is the penalty decision. Yeah. So Daniels has as is...
2: Uh, taken out Lico a couple of big hits on Lico actually some good tackles from Daniels but it's a corner and Tommy Elphick drags the player down now I saw in the paper that Elphick is saying oh it happens all the time and it's just a fashion but for me when you watch it like there's no excuse he's not looking at the ball he makes it such an easy decision for the referee so um, the player's done a run towards the back post. Elphick's turned. He's facing the family stands, got arms both around him. And it's just like, man, it's just a dumb foul. It's a dumb foul in the box. If you, It's like when players go up for headers and when they're not looking at the ball, it's always a foul because your intention is not to get the ball because you're not looking at it. You know, there's no defensive reason why you take your eyes off the ball like that and put your arms around the player. So for me it's always going to be a penalty.
1: But hey, you know, if, if Artur Boric was to blame for earlier on, he certainly redeemed himself, didn't he? I mean, it was a cracking, it was Craig Gardner once again, and um, it was a right footage shot, but uh, you know, the double save, he did really well with that. Yeah, brilliant save. I think as, as Dave said on the
2: fans forum is, you know, on the fan thoughts, it was his best save he'd ever seen live. It was a, Brilliant goalkeeper save. Um, he's he's guessed right. You, you could say, if you're looking at the run-up, I like to look at the run-ups, and it was a pretty curved run-up. So you could say it's likely that he was going to go that side. But for me, the quickness of Boric's feet, he took two steps, which is the key. He goes with his left foot first, and then that gives him the push from the right leg to then really get that strong, quick leap to his right-hand side. Good hand on it. Up straight away. Steve Cook, I think it was, sliding in. Actually hooks the ball as if it's going back over Boric's shoulder. The big paw comes out. And he's pretty quick with his reflexes. I remember... I can't remember what game it was. Was it against United when there was a cross, a low cross across the six-yard box that took a deflection and he had to readjust with his left arm? Um, This was kind of similar. It was just a case of a reaction. Get your right arm out. Hook it away. Brilliant save, almost as good as the little dance celebration that Tommy Elphick does. If you watch the replay back when he makes that second <laughs> save, if you've watched Anchorman, Man, you know when they do that little excited woohoo, and they do their little three hundred and sixty <laughs>
1: degree spin. That was pretty much Tommy Elphick, eh?
2: Hey? Because he got he got out of jail there,
1: definitely. So people on Twitter were agreeing. Um, Tom Bodale said that's Boric in a, a microcosm. Poor clearance leads to a goal, later saves a penalty, makes a brilliant follow-up stop. Uh, we also had uh, James on Twitter that said typical Boric today, bit of a howler, but then a quality save, big poll in our goal. And then Liam Harrison said people loving Boric's penalty save. Well done. You've done your job, but it would be better if you'd done your job more often. Hmm, bit harsh, Liam. So second half and not much really of note happened for the first 15 minutes but on 60 minutes we saw the introduction of Callum Wilson and Josh King.
2: Yeah we did and interesting the first thing to note was that because Gradle got subbed and man he was unhappy. He trudged off the pitch. I don't know if you guys noticed this in the stadium but it certainly saw a close-up on TV. He trudged off the pitch. Stanislas kind of stood in his in his walk line to try and chest bump him or give him a high five, and he basically just shrugged past him, and then King was ready with his arms out to kind of give him, you know, the old two-handed high five type thing to swap places. He kind of shouldered past him, and you actually, there's a moment where Stanislas and King both say something to each other, like what's his problem? And yeah, it just seemed really unhappy to go off, but on came Wilson and King, and it totally changed the game and it was like you know when you go to see a, a big band play right and you're going to Els Court or one of these big venues or wherever or Wembley and there's the support band and it's the same stage it's the same PA but the sound's just a little bit shit and yeah then the main band comes on and suddenly it's like the sound engineers found the right buttons to press and you get this incredible sound It's kind of what it felt like with this game. It's like we'd had the support act for 60 minutes and then suddenly we make a couple of changes and it just totally transformed us. I mean, the energy, the speed, the skill, the attacking intent. It was
1: like a totally different team and a totally different game. It certainly was, and even after five minutes, Callum Wilson had a great chance where he was running in uh, to the penalty box on the left side and pulled a shot uh, wide to the right of the post. Um, that was unlucky, but, you know, the pressure, we started to put more pressure on, and then finally, the breakthrough came, and that was around about 82 minutes or so, wasn't it? It was, and here's my pun. West Brom,
2: by their own game hmm you get it because because for all the fancy football we score from a long aimless throw into the box no real direction on it there's no real threat it just bounces down richie comes in great bullet header from four yards but it felt quite nice
1: to to out pulis pulis yeah, and Matt Ritchie now has been involved in more Premier League goals than any other Bournemouth player this season. Scored 10, uh, sorry, he's got 10, so four goals and six assists. So, yeah, West Brom could have won it. They hit the post, but, you know, it came out. And other than that, there wasn't much of note, was there? So final score was one all. I think, to be honest, it was probably the fair result, wouldn't you say? Yeah, probably.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, West Brom made it tough. I thought they might come out and be a little bit more open than they were. But then, yeah, we sh- I guess I should have known who was on the bench for them. But, yep, so it wrapped up. 1 1. And then, interestingly, on our coverage that we have with our Premier League pass down here in New Zealand, we always get a player interview after the game. And when it came up, it was Artur Boric that was in there. And I thought, hmm, this is going to be interesting because he seems like he's quite an interesting chap. And he definitely, I mean, you very rarely hear from him in the press. So I was a little bit surprised the club actually put him up for the interview. And it it made for some kind of compelling but slightly uncomfortable viewing because he looked really nervous and he kept looking around and he was answering questions and his English was stuttering a little bit and he couldn't find the words. And then he started to answer a question about, I can't remember, getting back in the game or whatever it was. And then he just kind of said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, um, my mind's just elsewhere. And the interviewer came back with, where is your mind? And I said, oh, oh this is pretty direct. And then... He just kind of said, oh, it's on it's on private things. So, yeah, and then you hear somebody, I don't know whether it's our press team or whatever, saying, you know, that that's it. And it just kind of ended. And it was just a really odd bit of live TV. And, yeah, Boric just, just wasn't comfortable being in that situation. And, yeah, I was just a bit surprised he
1: was put up to it. But it was just an odd bit of TV for a couple of minutes. Mm, people on Twitter agreed. Uh, Todd Wild said, "Just seen the Boric interview, concerning and difficult to watch. Uh, there may there must be something wrong off the pitch." And then Harry AFCB responded, "Changing room problems." And yeah, it's it's quite interesting. But there was the lap of honour and yeah I mean Borich was involved in that, and he walked past us and he even had a photo with my nephew and he he seemed okay he said you know he got his kids, and you know they went around the pitch and it seemed okay interestingly um some fans have been saying that Max Gradle was not there doing the whole post match lap around the pitch whether that's true or not I you know I can't remember seeing him put it that way but uh I don't know whether there's anything sort of going on there I don't know um one thing I do want to say um is that West Brom's manager, Tony Pulis, said that he's disappointed. The players work so hard. Bournemouth play the way they play, but they didn't really cause us any problems. I think he's actually dead right in his kind of opinion of the game there, because that's absolutely true. But what were your opinions on the game? We always ask for your puns, and we got a few in. So, drum roll, please. Here we go. Robert Murphy said, "Pole in the goal goes from zero to hero, as super subs put another point in the baggie. Oh, nice ending, good ending Yeah, good Steve Wright said Cookie delivers a rich tea biscuit For Matt to dunk To end AFCB's losing streak Yeah Yeah (laughs) (laughs) Enough said about that, the better And then Gary Wright uh, Gaza Wright on Twitter Said Ron dons a header But rich tea crumbles Baggy's hopes of a win Oh, that was better Hashtag bad puns You're not wrong there Yeah, don't give up your day job, chaps.
2: In better news, let's move on now to this week's Do You Remember? This player was born on the 26th of September 1965 in the Ivory Coast and made his professional debut for the French club Auxerre in 1984. He spent 13 years in the French League with the majority of his time playing for RC Lens, scoring 67 goals in 229 games. He moved to England in 1997 and signed for Walsall, scoring 24 goals in that season with the Saddlers. After a short spell with Dundee United, he signed with much fanfare to the Cherries in 1998 for a fee of £100,000. He made only nine appearances for AFCB, with his last act being seen crying as he walked past the South Stand, having been subbed due to injury. He subsequently retired from professional football. Just like each and every week, we like to test your brain. So there you go, Cherry's fan, do you remember? And as a guinea pig, let's
1: test on Sam. I'm pretty sure I know this one, Sean. I'm pretty sure I do.
2: After your performance last week, Sam, I must admit, I made it a little bit easier (laughs) just for your benefit only. But yeah, it was with that last clue. It was a sad, sad occasion. I remember as he trudged off behind the net and the old South Stand crying. But we will give you the answer to do you remember at the end of the show. So if you don't know it yet or if you're
1: not sure, we'll put you out your misery at the end. Well, earlier on, we had some quite terrible puns from the match review. So let's see if Sean can do any better in this week's AFC Bournemouth Club News. Disclaimer, no promises.
2: AFC Eddie, a sly fox as he distances the Cherries from Leicester. In an exclusive interview with the Daily Echo, Eddie Howe has looked to play down comparisons between the rise of the new Premier League champions and the Cherries. Howe said, I would urge real caution when people bring up the story of Leicester. We are not Leicester. I think it has been incredible what Leicester have done and an amazing achievement, but I think it is very rare that it will happen in football and we need to remember our journey so it appears he is trying to keep expectation levels down as the club now look forward to another season in the Premier League. But could we do it? Boric comfortably deals with crosses of tees and ticks all the right penalty boxes as he discusses new contract. Goalkeeper Arta Boric has reached the required number of appearances within his contract to now trigger a one-year extension for next season. Signed initially on a one-year deal at the beginning of the Cherries' debut Premier League season, Boric is now entitled to activate the additional year and it appears he will do so judging by his Instagram account where he posted a photo of his penalty save from the weekend along with the message, Last home game, thanks for the support to all AFCB fans. See you next season. Daniel's Dazzles Picky Piers Prize In the official AFC Bournemouth end-of-season awards, Charlie Daniels went home with the top prize of Players Player of the Year after receiving the most votes amongst his teammates. Charlie had a sensational season at left-back and was unlucky not to receive an England call-up based on his form, with the upcoming Euro championships probably causing Roy Hodgson to stick mostly to who he knows so close to the tournament. In other awards, Simon Francis bagged the Supporters Player of the Year, Brendan Goodship the Under-21 Player of the Year, and Joshua King won the Junior Cherries Player of the Year. And don't forget, next week we'll announce the winners of the amazing Back of the Net End of Season Awards.
1: AFC B Club Games. Hi, my name's Klaus Jorgensen, and you're listening to Back of the Net.
0: Supporter Profile. What is your name?
6: Ben Phillips.
0: Where do you live?
6: Northbourne in Bournemouth.
0: First Bournemouth game attended
6: hartley United in 2010 or 2009.
0: Favourite player of all time.
6: Steve Fletcher from Saving Bournemouth with that fantastic goal and saving us from going kaput.
0: Favourite current player. Well, it's
6: got to be Puy because of that goal against Bolton in the championship in the final home game to make us go to the Premier League.
0: Favourite all-time AFCB game?
6: It's got to be Bolton.
0: Your greatest AFCB goal?
6: Probably Matt Ritchie versus Sunderland when I was a mascot and it was my dad's birthday.
0: Best moment as a Bournemouth fan?
6: Probably Puyi scoring that goal against Bolton.
0: If you could sign any player, past or present, who would it be?
6: That is very tricky. I think I would go for Messi. Yeah, Messi. Because he's just a brilliant striker well right winger actually he he's just brilliant scores whenever he gets the chance world class
0: your chant of choice
6: we support our local team
0: what league position will we finish in this season
6: 13th or 14th
2: Thank you to this week's supporter profile, Ben Phillips, who is at nine years old, is the second youngest supporter profile we've ever had on the show. I know, that's right, listener. Don't forget, Liam Goodfield was 16 months old just a few weeks back when he was on the uh, supporter profile. But yeah, great to get a bit more youth on the show. Brought the average age of our supporter profiles down by probably a considerable amount.
1: Yep, and before that, we had the club news, and Sean, you cracked out a few, but the one that caught my eye was Boric comfortably deals with the crosses of T's and ticks all the right penalty boxes as he discusses a new contract. That was wordy, Sean, but I tell you what, I like that. Did that take you long? Look, sometimes, you know, like as
2: Peter Jackson just down the road here, some things take, you know, a long time to make them a good time. Look at Lord of the Rings, look at The Hobbit. Well, no, look at Lord of the Rings. You know, so same with some of my puns. But yeah, that's that's another great effort. Thanks.
1: So I still can't believe that we've got Big Fletch on the show. 24 years at the club. The North Stand is named after him. He's had every single job that's going at the club. I swear it. But here it is. This is part one of our interview with Steve Fletcher. And here we're going to be focusing on his playing years at AFC Bournemouth.
2: The big interview.
0: The big big interview. This is the big interview.
2: Fletch, thanks very much for being on back of the net.
4: My pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me.
2: Hey, so look, we're going to go straight back to the early years to start with, because uh, we've got listeners around the world, some of which are new, newer fans, so maybe know about your goal at Grimsby, but maybe not the, the, the whole story. So you signed for us for £30,000 back in 1992 by Tony Pulis, and you were an 18-year-old. Now, other than the sunshine, warm weather and beaches, what was it that made you sign for Bournemouth and leave Hartlepool behind and the cold north of England?
4: Well, from, I'm from Hartlepool, so it's not enough already. <laughs> it's um, it's cold in Hartlepool, so the warm weather was a good advantage. Um, I remember the day, it was the 22nd of July, 1992. Um, I went to pre-season training and we were halfway through uh, in my hometown club, Hartlepool, where I started off as a youth team player and then uh, progressed into the youth team, got offered a professional contract. So I was in my second year as a professional and the manager... Um, who had taken over at the beginning of that season? Alan Murray. He took over from the, the late great Cyril Knowles, uh, ex-Tottenham player, legend at Tottenham. Um, who's the, obviously, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have, you know, had a chance in professional football because he he gave me my opportunity. Unfortunately, he died of a, a brain, brain tumour. It was horrendous, and you know, I didn't I didn't quite see eye I saw I was a new manager. Or he didn't really, or I didn't really fit in his plans. So. I got the call into his office, um, as I couldn't call. I mean, I'm going back 24 years, but I got the call in his office just before we were about to go off pre season training. Um, he sat me down and said, Look, I've had a call from Tony Pulis. Obviously, I didn't know who Tony Pulis was. Cause obviously, football wasn't communicated like it is around the country and in mind worldwide now. Um, he said he's the manager of Bournemouth, he just took over from Harry Redknapp. Um, and I was like, oh, we played them in the last game of the previous season and we beat them 1-0 and then it clicked that I had a decent game and he obviously liked the look of me. None he was taking over from Harry Redknapp, who was going on to be assistant manager at West Ham. And Tony had put a bid in of £30,000. The manager at Hartlepool, Alan, Alan Murray, said, well, look, I'm prepared to let you go. Uh, you're going to find it tough here. Um, being said, choice striker. You know, I was only 18, so I wasn't too worried. I mean, there's not many first choice, choice strikers around the country even now, who at 18 years of age. But he did say to me, "Look, he said if you go down and you're not happy with it, he said come back. Your contract here is still in place, and you can battle for your position." So I phoned my father, and obviously no more no mobile phones back in those days. So from the landline of the football club, and said, uh, "Do you fancy a trip?" He said, "Yeah, I would go to Middlesbrough, Newcastle, which is obviously half an hour away." I said, uh, "No, we're going to Bournemouth." And um, we have got our finger on the map, started in the northeast of the country and worked our way down and right at the bottom of the country, there's Bournemouth. So off we went, six hours, seven hours in the car. Um, Tony Pulis, the manager, had strategically told me to come in via the West Cliff. and Anyone who's been to Bournemouth knows the Westcliff is a beautiful part where you come in along along the seafront and you see all the beautiful sights and the 11 mile beach. So he's very clever. Um, and it was a beautiful summer's day, like you say July the twenty-second, and I remember looking at my father, thinking, "I don't think I'll be going back to Harlepool. Um <laughs> This was like being in the Costa del Sol in Spain. It was, it was amazing. And um, he put me in the best hotel in Bournemouth, which was the Royal Bath, right on the front, on the on the, on the promenade. Uh, once again, very clever from Tony. And um, we met him the next day. Um, he even told us to go to a beautiful restaurant, which he would had done for us, and all free of charge. So, you know, it was all mounting up for me to, obviously say yes to him. Uh, he was doing his very best anyway. And we met him the next day, he made me feel very welcome. And, and I signed for Bournemouth and back up I went on the M1, which is the big motorway from, uh, in England and back up to, my, to, to my, uh, my mother, who hadn't even a clue that I'd signed because like I say, there's no mobile phones back in those days. And we had to stop off at the service station, uh, as we call them on the motorway and put the money in the phone box phone my mum and say um, I've signed for Bournemouth to which she burst out in tears she couldn't believe she was going to lose her son her only son 20, well I was 19 years of age and not only that I was obviously moving from one end of the country to the other and you know, I'm mindful you know, where you are in New Zealand and, yeah. but England's a very small country but still when you move 350 miles away when you're a hometown lad it's quite daunting I mean it's quite common these days but back in the day you know 24 years ago it was very unheard of for a player to move from one end of the country to another to a football team so yes it was very daunting very difficult um and the very next day I packed my stuff and back down I was and I I drove myself which was difficult in itself because I'd only passed my driving test about a year before and to go the full length of the country and there was no sat now back in the day <laughs> I'm making it sound like it's the 1930s here but there was nothing like that I had to follow a map and instructions and um Stop off and phone my father, like I say, from the service station, just to make sure I was going the right way. And it was was difficult. It was tough. I moved in with a family, uh, a local family who looked after me for for three months before I found another family. And eventually, a year and a half later, I got my own little place with my agent. Um, We had a place in Bournemouth. I met someone who was an agent, and he had a little garage on the end of his house, which he converted into a flat, and I lived there for a few years. So. Yeah, times were hard. you know. I'd been from you know, almost like a, a mother's boy living at home. Obviously, still independent, but you know, relying on my parents to, there you go, deal with life and get on with it, almost.
2: When you were with the first squad and were with the playing with the boys, were there any players in particular that kind of helped you settle in?
4: Yeah, there were. I played alongside a striker who went on to sign for Norwich for big money who was called Efina Um He went on for, to play international as well. Um, and he helped me a lot. Um, he guided me. Um, I had other players around me who were quite young. We had a player we had called Neil Masters who went on to sign for Wolverhampton Wonders for £400,000. He was he was close by in digs, so we always used to hang out, hang around. Another lad called Keith Rowland who went on to play for West Ham. Um, yeah, so we had a good little bunch of younger pros who were like what we call first and second year pros at the age of like 18, 19. Um, and we all used to hang around, and, and they helped me through it a lot of times. I and mean, I could rely on the senior players. Um, I'd go and speak to them, but you know, it's not easy when you're 19 years of age. And I know a lot of young lads now who are 18, 19, and got a lot of front, very confident and, and cocky in some respects. But back in the day, I was taught to, you know, nod my head, shake my head at the right times, say my pleases and thank yous, and, and get on with it and just be quiet. Um, and that's the way it was. It, and uh, it wasn't easy to always approach senior players like it is now. Um, it was only when I really needed help I would go to them. But, but in general, everyone was great to me. You know, I look back and think I could have easily you know, thrown in the towel and went back to school. But um, I was determined to stick it out. And there was a lot of people that stuck by me and helped me through a bit of a sticky patch in my first couple of years.
2: Yeah, well, I was going to ask about that because I mean, I was I was going regularly when you you know when you first signed for the club, and I've got to say I was always a big fan of yours, Fletch. I had your name on the back of my shirt when uh, yeah, one of the first I reckon. But that first couple of years was was pretty tough because I mean, people were immediately thinking, you know, you're a striker and you're going to replace Jimmy Quinn and bring us the goals, and you know, you were a different player, but. It was tough for you. What was it like in those early, especially those early couple of years? I mean, did you ever have any comprehension you could end up playing over 700 games for the club?
4: Well, you know, you don't. You take one game at a time and you can't even see past the next season. Um, I know I'd signed a three year contract, but it doesn't really mean anything in football. If you're not wanted, you, you won't last. And it's ironic, really, because we we're playing West Brom tomorrow and it's Tony Pulis as the manager. And by the local paper, the Daily Echo in Bournemouth have just asked me to do an article. Where I've spoke about exactly the same thing, how Tony uh, bought me and, uh, and how he looked after me and nurtured me. Um, and the fact that I was brought in to replace Jimmy Quinn as such. Well, I was in the supporter's eyes, but Jimmy Quinn was a, a very mature, experienced 30-year-old striker who, who you know, has had a great career in the low leagues um, and banged goals into fun. I was more of a target man who'd only played a handful of games for my local club, Hartley in the two years I'd had as a professional. Um, so, you know, I was nowhere near a seasoned pro, never mind a prolific goal scorer, and I've proven throughout my career, probably goals, if I'm being honest, hand on heart, goals were a little bit of a, a downfall. Apart from that, you know, the rest of my game improved massively, and if, it, if I could have bagged more goals in my career, you know, I probably went on to play at the top level, but... You know that's another story. So yeah, the goals were difficult. Um, you know, I always gave my all, and I think that's why a lot of fans stuck by me. But I do recall, you know, a lot of supporters you know, hurling abuse at me, if you want. And you know, I'm not going to hide that that they did. And as much as you know, I, I suppose I'm adored these days, and I have fought hard for that, and worked like my socks off to for the football club, and, and I adore the fans back. Probably more than they even adore me, but the first couple of years were, were tough and as many people that did like me and stuck by me and understood my situation moving away from home and trying to replace a striker that was probably irreplaceable at the time um, there was as many fans that were giving me abuse and telling me to go back home and we don't want you I'm putting that politely so you can imagine what it was like on the terraces um, and that was hard because that mentally you know, scars you um, but it also toughens you up and makes a man of you and it was sink or swim, really. Um, and especially when Tony was relieved of his duties after two years, you know, I, we were finishing the bottom half of the division the first two years I was there. Like so four goals in my first season, six in my second. Although I did have a crucial ligament injury in between, but either way, the, the goals were not flowing like I wanted them to. Um, but I gave my all, and I think a lot of people stood by me for that. And uh, when Tony was relieved of his duties, you know, I thought, well, let's see. That's the end of Bournemouth, and I'll be going back up to Hartlepool or or somewhere else. Um, and then along came Mel Machen, who probably transformed my game and and gave me belief that I could stay at this football club and be a major asset.
2: Yeah, well, during that time, obviously, you know when Jonesy was there as well, and and the great escapes and all that. What do you think your game changed under Mel?
4: The great escape basically made my career at well, Bournemouth. Simple as that. It was 1994. I'd been there two years. We were into into my third year, which was my final year, really, of my contract. So Mel Machin came in in about the October. We were uh, rock bottom of the Football League. Um, league One, sorry. It was probably League Two back in the day. Um, we had the third tier of English football and I think we drew two games, if that, and we were miles behind everyone guaranteed to go down. And Mel came in in the October and brought a couple of players in. Steve Robinson, uh, Neil Young, who ended up being my best mate in football. Who now lives in Adelaide, actually, in Australia. He, When he retired a few years back, uh, six, seven year back, he moved to Adelaide. But just a couple of players. Steve Jones come along. Uh, Matty Holland, who obviously went on a fabulous career with Ipswich, um, international career with Republic of Ireland. He was, he was a top player, but we're all very young, naive. I think that was our, probably our biggest asset because we had no fear. Um, I remember I was playing centre-half at the beginning of that season because all our defenders were injured. I remember that. Um, and I didn't have a great time. But I, I was okay, but I didn't have anyone alongside me because they were experienced and I was injured. So I was also playing alongside the midfielder called Michael McElhatton. And neither, of us, neither of us had any defensive experience. So we were almost playing off the cuff and we'd win one and then get beat three. And then, you know we conceded conceding goals for fun. It was almost we needed our strikers to score more than we conceded because we were always leaking goals. Um, and that's when Mel came in and ironically, I got, he played me at centre-half for a couple of games and then I got injured. And then when I came back, it was Christmas time. I think it was out for about six weeks. And he said to me, look, I want to put you back up front. I want you to go back up front as a striker. Um, We're going to put you up there with Steve Jones. I'm going to play Steve Robinson just in behind you. He's like a Northern Ireland, and that's the one that came from Tottenham. He said, I'm going to play a different system. I'm going to play like a 4-3-1-2. He said, no, I just want you to go up there and give me everything you've got. And I basically knew it was a test because I knew what it was. was, This is my chance to show I can say at the football club. If I found it here and, and don't do it, then that'll be the end of me. So, first game back, Swansea at home, uh, Boxing Day, it was, I remember the day. Scored 2, 1-3-1, or 3-2 actually, 1-3-2. I didn't get the winner, I got the first two goals. Um, we won 3-2, and from that moment on, I can honestly say, hand on heart, that changed my my time at Bournemouth. Yeah, changed it into where all the bad times is, is almost forgotten and everything else. Of course, there was slip-ups here and there, but everything else from then on, you know, it was just a total different transformation. I mean, I got clear of the air that year. We stayed up I mean, we had ten points at Christmas when I played that Swansea game. Ten points. We were something like, as you know, twelve, fourteen, sixteen points away from away from the safety zone. Uh obviously the bottom four went down that year, as they do in the third tier of uh, English football. But I mean, you probably wouldn't even got any odds in the bookmakers for us surviving. They would have just left us away. Uh and we fought back and fought back. And actually, someone said to me that if we, the season had started at Christmas, halfway through the season, to the end, we'd have been promoted. We'd have finished second in the form table. And we clocked on and clocked on. We had to win our last game at home to Shrewsby. Shrewsbury town. Um, and we were 3-0 up in the first 25 minutes. We'd just decimated them. We were so hyped up. And I got player of the air that year. Um, supporters player of the air. And that season, for me, it was just like... A whole like a whole new era for me started again. Um, did have a couple of nightmare nightmare seasons after that, but that was through injury uh, in the middle nineties or middle to late nineties. But that one season um, really gave me the the belief that I could I could be a part of something good at the football club. Obviously couldn't couldn't even begin to foresee the next you know eighteen years of unraveling, but you can you can see yourself having a bit of a future for a couple of years and. We had some sex- successful years after that, you know. Oh, yeah, we lost the players because they got sold on. Which we were a selling club, and you can't help that. So We've seen the likes of Steve Jones go, um, you know, Matty Holland, Ian Cox, good players. Um, like we did all the way through my career, but that you know, was just part and parcel of the football and the way we had to survive financially. But you know, that 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 year was synonymous with. I think my 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 love with the fans. I think that's when it started. Mm.
2: Yeah, it def- that, that changed things, didn't it? It definitely changed things. And I think as a club as well, that was because we all as supporters had been through that. Whatever came next, we were ready because we were dead and buried. And yeah, and then we had that young side, didn't we?
4: Yeah, you're right. You did. And I think because everyone gave their all, yeah, the results were great, but everybody, because we, we give our all, that's what supporters want at the end of the day. I remember a supporter come up to me and said, Fletch, I don't give a monkey if you don't score any goals this season. But if you're giving 100% and flying into challenges and winning your headers and showing us determination, he said, that'll do for me. And do you know what? I thought, you're right, because that's the least you can do as a footballer is give effort. You might not be technically the best player in the world, but you can give effort. And if supporters see you giving effort, they get behind you. When they get behind you, it gives you more confidence. And when you've got more confidence, you do better. It's just a a snowball effect. And that's what happened. And we all did it. And we all had a belief. Like I said, we were a young side. We had no fear. We believed in each other and we just went from 10 points of Christmas like you say, into unbelievable staying up. It was just crazy to think that we could do it. And I think the fans appreciated that and they obviously appreciated me and the efforts. And sometimes to the fans, I mean, even today, people still talk about that year to me. They say, that's one of my favourite seasons. We stayed up 1994, '95 season. I'm like, wow, after all what we've achieved... In the last few years, you know, they, they still recognise them years because that meant so much to the family because of how much effort we put in and there was a togetherness. You can't, you can't break togetherness. Togetherness gets you everywhere, and we had it.
2: Because I, I started going, yeah, pretty much just to, just before you joined the club was when I started going, and then I had season ticket up until eight years ago when I left to come down here. So I was there through all those times. For your sins. Oh, mate, they, but they were special. You know, the greatest game, I, I did an interview with Jonesy and I spoke to him and I said the same to you, it was that, that Brentford away game was the greatest game of football emotionally for Bournemouth I'll ever attend. I, I, you know, it don't, nothing for me can top that, you know, as a memory.
4: Yeah, where we come from, i like, say 10, 10 points of Christmas to go to the Brentford game and have to win to get out of the bottom four. Um, and we went, they like, us one real up, Scott mean and that horrible, shitty goal we conceded, and then Jonesy down the right flank, cut across, bang, into the roof of the net, and, you know, I think the rest was always going to happen. We were always going to beat uh, Shrewsby at home. I mean, we absolutely decimated them in half, and weird, 'cause weird, because we played on the Tuesday night, and it was like, then the following games we weren't played till the following Saturday, but for some reason, I think it was because of what happened, they were mindful of Bank Holiday or whatever it was, and we played Leeds. I wasn't here then, but it was the year before I came, but when we played Leeds in the trash of the place, they were mindful of that happening again, so they put our game onto the bank holiday Monday or Tuesday or whatever, and we already were safe. And then the Plymouth were in the relegation with us, and we had a few of their fans turned up in the stands seats, and they just had their they just had the the hands on their head when we were freeing it up. I remember looking over thinking, that's not a shirt, that's green and black, and I thought, wow, that's Plymouth, and realised they'd come hopefully to see us lose, and. Uh, like I say, we, we absolutely tore tore Shrewsby apart in the first half and yeah, you know, the the rest was anti climax, but yeah, what a season, mate. What a season. It was.
2: Yeah. And and for all the highs, yeah, you still I still think back to that with very fond memories.
4: Yeah, I think you know, it's not always winning the league and, and playing at the top level that the supporters love. I mean, maybe it, massive clubs like Liverpool and Manchester because that's all they've ever known really. But a club like ours appreciates that type of season and the one where we went into, you know, administration. and I scored the goal against somebody just as much as they have winning the championship and playing the season in the Premier League because that was the heart and soul of the club. That's all they knew. They were like I said earlier, institutionalizing that side of the, of the football club. And people say to me, that's still my best season. Even though you'd say, well, surely the Premier League season is your best season because you've played all these teams you could never dreamed of in, on the on a, on a on an even level. And they say, yeah, this is great. and and you know, it's it's dreamland, but for the passion, the pride, and keeping, keeping us on the edge of the seats, we loved the great escape season. We loved, you know, the Grimsby goal, and, and it's great. It's great because I was part of that. Yeah.
2: Now, over the years, like you said, players did come and go, and obviously, you were a constant. You played with a lot of strike partners. What, what were your few of your favourites to play along with?
4: Well, here yeah, we are. Uh, our programme editor, uh, who sadly passed away last, last season. Um was actually the beginning of this season, sorry. Um, Mick Cunningham, had been there for as long as I had I think he's you know, he's there. he started the year before I did. He came to me towards the end of my career, it would have been two thousand and twelve, something like that, a year before the end of my career, he said, How many strikers do you think you've played alongside? Well, this could be like just makes you strikers, people on loan, obviously permanent uh, permanent players who signed contracts and said, so, I don't know, 40, 50? He said, over 100. A hundred different strength partners. If you asked me to name 30 now, I probably couldn't do it. Probably couldn't do it. But then you think back and you think, oh, yeah. I mean, even our manager now, Eddie Howe, came on away at Fulham mm. in the late 90s and played up front with me for 10 minutes. So, yeah, I'm counting little moments like that, but it's unbelievable. And they all went on and did great things, and I just stayed at the level. So I, was, I always say to people, well, at least I was consistently average. <laughs>
2: I was just going to say, no, you, you were making them better, right?
4: Well, listen, I, I I protected people. I ended up being a big, strong centre-forward who, who was bear the brunt of the challenges and do all the physical, what we call the donkey work. And, and that your little strikers like Jermaine the Four, James to Mark Steen, Steve Jones, you know, bag the goals and get the glory. But in the end of the day, everybody appreciated what I did for the team. Um, and the must have because every manager played me, so you can only go by what the managers think. And... I'd like to think, like I say, with them playing me and putting belief in me, I was doing something right. Um of my favourites, probably, you know, you have to look no further than Janine Defoe when he came for that one season at the age of 17 when he, he scored 10 goals in a row and broke what was then the world record for the amount of consecutive league games. I know it's been broken since by Ronaldo, Messi, and obviously Jamie Vardy in the Premier League, but at the time he broke the world record, which was crazy um, to be part of that. I used to just flick the ball on and he would beat three players, stick it in the top corner, and I would claim an assist, <laughs> which is crazy. But he was, he was, um, he was a different animal to what we were used to. But I loved playing with James Hater. James Hater, not many people mention him to me when they say about the great strikers I play with. The old CFA Kuku, you know, Steve Cottrell, Steve Jones, Mark Stein, and obviously Jermaine, and, and later on Brett Pittman, But James was very. Unselfish, you know, I would have to turn round and chase the full back because James would already be doing it. We were so almost telepathic every time I flicked the ball on, you know, nine times out of ten, I would fall to James, and that's not just by luck or by chance, that's because he knew where I was going to, you know, flick the ball on or head it down to, and you know, I probably supplied a hell of a lot of his goals. and I need him to score because if he scores from my flicker on, it makes me look good as well, you know, as an assist. And, it's a partnership and I love James and we never had a bad word to say each other off the pitch. I can't remember us ever falling out or having a crossword. Um, and for the four or five years I played with James Hayes. I loved every moment. I was so happy when James was on the, on the team sheet every week. But I did, like I said, I've named a few, you know, Max Dean, Steve Jones, uh, Steve Kotler, I've named some great strikers. I played with Brett Pittman towards the end of my career. Um, I had some good times, some really good times. um, with some very good strikers who played at a much higher level than I ever did.
2: So talking about goals so I just want to talk about your goals yeah. for a moment. Well that one last long. Now, what was better? Scoring that volley in the playoff final at the Millennium Stadium or finally scoring your hat trick after fifteen years against Brentford on New Year's Day?
4: The goal against Grimsby, which you didn't mention. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But the, the but I just want to talk about I want to talk about that hat trick because we had you know in the stands I think there was I looked up I think there were nine times when you'd got two and I can remember those games where we're all singing Fletcher's on a hat trick and the the celebration when you finally did it that was such a big deal.
4: Yeah, it was. I mean, listen, I mentioned Grimsby because obviously the significance of the goal and what it meant to the football club and but you know scoring at the Millennium Stadium everybody wants to score in the playoff final get the first goal a lovely sweet volley, which was very unusual of me to do that and run off to my parents and my wife and my children who were up in the stadium and the Sky Sports cameras were on them and it was just great. I mean, we won the game, we got promoted. That was amazing. You can't take that away from me. That'll live with me forever. I've got the signed shirt by all the players from that season, with my medal and all the pictures round it, you know, all shot as I scored the goal and running away and celebrating. So that's a memory that'll live with me forever and still gets brought up to this day. Um the hat trick different because obviously it's only a league game, there's not the euphoria of your whole season depending on the, obviously the the Cardiff Millennium Stadium game in the playoffs. So but it's something that really haunted me for it was two thousand and five, it was January the first, two thousand and five, we were playing Brentford. So I obviously had a career of already about a career sixteen years. Um, you know, thirteen at Bournemouth and not got a hat-trick. I'd scored a brace, which is obviously his two goals, on, like you say, nine, ten occasions, and probably, I think, majority of them, I'd scored them by half-time, which, mm. you know, gave me 45 minutes to get that third goal, but it never happened, and, and it was a brunt. I was the brunt of the jokes among the players, and in a nice way. So even when, even in training, when I'd scored two goals, someone would shout around, well, such won't get a third, because you can never get a hat-trick. <laughs> we played silly games on the coach, and... I'd go 2-0 up and I'd go, nah, Fletcher's got a bottle that he won't get his hat-trick. And it was just a, a bit of an in-house joke. So when it finally came along, um, you can imagine the relief and the euphoria from the fans. And I remember because six minutes in, Wade Elliott had a shot, keeper parried it, I, slight, sli- uh, I slid in with my left foot, smashed it home. And I went over to the halfway line, like you do, for kick-off. Um, somebody shouted from the east end... Um, I obviously stand right next to the touchline being a striker. Shouted, hat trick today, Fletch. Um, and I turned around and I said, Yeah, I've said that many times. Um, I remember it to this day and just laughed it off. Well, five minutes later, Wade Elliott went down the wing again, putting a cross to the back stick. I've got to dive in nighter like Superman. Buried it in the bottom corner. And now I'm thinking, Oh, wow, we're like 12 minutes into the game. And I've got two goals. Hey, I've now got not only 45 minutes, I've got 80 minutes to get my hat trick. <laughs> and I'm thinking now it's playing on my mind and everybody's like roaring me on when I get back the halfway line this time not one but hundreds of people are on come on Fletch you can do it you can do it I think everybody was just willing me to do it um nothing happened for the rest of the first half didn't really have many more chances they got back in the game um I remember Isaiah Rankin was playing up front he actually scored two on the go in the game and I was thinking, oh, this is not going to happen. I've blew it again. I'm not going to get another chance. And then Alan Connell came on a sub. He was on the right wing. We were up for a set piece. It got cleared away. He picked the ball up on the right wing and he slung in a high looping cross, which gave me enough time, obviously because I'm quite a slow runner, (laughs) give me enough time to uh, make my way towards the penalty spot. And I rose above everybody and headed it down and it skidded off the greasy surface because it was a wet day and into the bottom corner past the keeper Nelson, who was in goal for Brentford, and I just ran shirt off towards the fans and straight to them fans who had been willing me on. And, I, and they, you know, they just all jumped on me, all the players jumped on me. and I mean, you get a yellow card for taking the shirt off. I think the ref couldn't believe his eyes. He didn't even give me a yellow card. He was surprised that I got a hat-trick. So <laughs> it was an amazing day. Um, I got all the boys to sign the ball, and i still got it in my little bar, which I have a bar-like stroke memorabilia room in my house. And it takes pride of place in in its little case, see-through case, Perspex case. Um, Brentford, you know, Bomber 3, Brentford 2, 2005, first ever hat-trick. and it was amazing, yeah. And it never happened again after that. (laughs) (laughs) One and done. One, done, that's the end of that. You only have to do it once anyway, surely. Once is enough for any man
2: now Fletch look we haven't got we haven't got the time unfortunately to talk about all 700 games because I'd, I'd love to just talk for your whole career but I want to also touch on kind of after you'd finished you know we, we've you know the stories about the Grimsby goal and you coming back we've heard time and time again and, and it's a great story but i imagine of course this year now we're in the Premier League you've probably had to tell that tale probably more than you have done the last few years right?
4: Well, Sky Sports. I local Sky Sports, which is obviously national around the world. They did a big documentary on us um, straight away. The first thing they mentioned was the Grimsby goal, so I did a piece on that. Then NBC Sports in America came over. I mean, that's viewed by millions and millions. They did a piece and obviously spoke about the Grimsby goal. You know, I've had more more publicity probably from the Grimsby goal since we got in the Premier League, and obviously I'm retired then. I probably did in the previous, well, how long was it? You know, 2009, in the previous six years, it's seven years, it's, it's crazy. And somebody said to me, how often do you think about it? And I said, God's honest truth, I said, almost every day. And I said, that's impossible. I said, it's not. I said, because somebody will mention it to me. I could be shopping in the supermarket, putting petrol in the car, walking down the street, walking the dogs, out with my family, out having a few drinks in a pub, wherever I am. Ironically speaking to you today and mentioning it, somebody will bring up the Grimsby goal and mention it because they said that was the catalyst for everything that's happened to this football club. Because if I hadn't scored that goal and we got relegated out of the football league, uh, we just, we've gone into liquidation. We did that to start from 10, 12 leagues below and we probably wouldn't have a football club and even our manager, Eddie Howes, admitted that. So, you know, scoring the goal 10 minutes from time is the most important goal, not only in my career, but in the club's history, and it's lovely because, obviously, I've never played a championship, never mind Premier League, but to be recognised as the person who maybe instigated this or that goal um, and a small little catalyst of well of what we've become, um, it's lovely because, obviously, that's my little my little bit of limelight and I'm going to cling on to it. I have to cling on to it because, you know, I'm an ex-footballer and you, you, you cling to your memories, you do, and especially the good ones, and that was a great one. So, you know, almost every day somebody will mention it um, I'll think about it. I'll see a picture around the stadium that will remind me of it. And you know, people said, "Do you not get bored of it?" And I thought, "Well, why should I? Because you know, I live on these memories. Uh, they're for everyone, they're for everyone, not just me, my family, the supporters. And um, like I say, since we got in the Premier League, it's all people have talked about. And I've had my little bit of limelight this season, which has been very nice.
1: <laughs> Hi, I'm Jimmy Glass, and this is Back of the Night Wow, it really was Steve Fletcher. I didn't believe you until that, but that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that, and I love the way he talks. Like, he's about 80 years old. He says, had to go to a phone box and put a coin in the slot. I thought he was going to say put a farthing in the slot for a minute, but I really, I really thought that was very interesting, very candid, Sean, and I'm looking forward to part two.
2: Yeah, it was a great chat with the big man. It's appreciate how much time he gave me. And uh, yeah, so that was part one. Part two, you'll want to hear that, which is going to be next week. So that discusses the non-playing days. And Fletch was really honest and open. He tells us about when he made the decision to retire and a really moving moment when he talked about sitting in the office with Eddie and Fletch basically asking for another year to play in the championship um we hear about the roles Fletcher's had in the club post-playing where it talks about his scouting and then what he does in his current role as first team coordinator um he then talks about the team and about the team spirit of the lads and because he's in their training every day now with them and then gives us some really great thoughts on Eddie himself so Fletcher's known Eddie obviously a long time so we find out a little bit more about the manager and finally Kind of thoughts for the future, really, where the club can go. Will Eddie remain at the club in the long term? Plus hopes and dreams for Fletcher's own future. So that's part two next week. Hope you enjoyed part one. And uh, yeah, just great to have the big man on the show.
1: Hmm. And speaking of uh, Fletcher's thoughts for the future, I wonder what his thoughts are on the upcoming game against Manchester United on Sunday, Sean. It's going to be an interesting one. The starting lineup, well, Eddie kind of uh, experimented, shall we say, against West Brom. What are you expecting from this?
2: I'm, I'm a bit torn. I think there could potentially be some quite big changes um, I I wouldn't be surprised if we saw feds in goal I don't know I just feel like there's some squad players there that maybe Eddie's gonna give a run out although having said that playing at Old Trafford such a big deal I'd imagine for all these players he's probably in that quandary of you know there's probably guys that want to play at Old Trafford versus those that have been on the bench but I'm gonna pick Federici might start Boric has played at Old Trafford anyway and um, will we see Sylvain Distan play Uh, you know, I I think potentially he'll be retiring at the end of the season. Could we see O'Kane? Could we see McDonald? Dare I say, could we see a Turbay? And will we maybe see Wilson and a Fobe up top? It's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's going to be tough. United have got you know, Champions League to play for. So we were thinking maybe they'd have nothing to play for and they might be resting players before the cup final. Now that's all changed and because of the Man City Arsenal result and it's all on for United. So I think they're going to come at us pretty hard and fast. And I hate to say it, but I, I played on FIFA... Uh, Last night, away at Old Trafford, last game of the season, FIFA 16, just to get a feel of how the game was going to go. Yeah, we lost 5-1, but having said that, Tequila Ranty scored our goal, so maybe we shouldn't be judging our predictions on that. But I'm afraid to say I'm going to, I'm actually going to go 3-1 to United.
1: Oh well depending on when you're listening Man United are playing tonight or maybe if you're listening on Wednesday they played yesterday but they're up against West Ham at Upton Park in the last match and I know that uh, Martial is a doubt he uh, withdrew from Saturday's win at Norwich that Man United had due to a tight hamstring uh, Damian's sidelined by an ankle injury Fellaini's banned uh, Daily Blind and Marcus Rashford could be recalled so I think you know Oh, it's going to be an interesting one. Manchester City and Man United basically vying for fourth place. They've got something to play for, yes. But a little romantic part of me feels that there's AFC Bournemouth have got something more to give this season. I don't think it's quite finished yet. I can see a 1-0 Bournemouth win, Sean. Oh,
2: oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. I'd love it, love it, love it. yes. Yes. I hope I am horribly wrong. Sam, I hope you are spot on.
3: Hi, this is Gary Chapman, the bloke who stands in the back of the North stands, shouting up the cherries. You're listening to Back of the Net.
1: Well, we're nearly done for another episode of Back of the Net. But before we go, I want to smash this week's Do You Remember? Out of the Park right now. Now, Sean, some brilliant clues, but... It was after the third one where I thought, right, I've got this. Can I, can I just go ahead and say it? Go on, then. What do you think? I don't know how to pronounce his surname properly. This may be a clue. Roger Bolly.
2: Yes, Sammy. <laughs> yes. Roger Bolly is the correct answer, <laughs> and it was so exciting when we signed him. I remember because it was like it was like an actual real signing it was a real player. Yeah. it wasn't a player that we had to go and you know look through some book to find dusted off who's which, which youth team did this guy get released from it was he was a proper totally legit striker and he lasted what at nine games and yeah
1: oh well I'll always remember that game where he um he didn't last very long but he cried and yeah so much hope with that guy I mean he he knocked him in for fun for Walsall but oh anyway that was a long, long time ago, wasn't it? We've, we've we've moved on since then. We definitely have, Sam. Now, thanks for all the
2: support you've given the show uh, to date. We really do appreciate it, whether you've been tweeting us, Facebook messaging us or sending us emails. Ah, oh, actually, like Big T sent me an email after his asparagus rant last week to say he's heading up to the Man United away game because it's his stag weekend. And so he's urging all fans to bring you a fresh asparagus that so can all be thrown on the pitch. A bit like the late 80s when it was celery. So, yeah, good luck with that. And uh, if you do see a rogue piece of asparagus on the hallowed turf of the Theatre of Dreams, you'll know it's from Big T. But Other than those kind of emails, we've also had some great ones just saying that they're really enjoying the show. So thank you. And we do urge you, please do tell your friends about the show because we'd like to get a few more listeners. Uh, That would be great. And maybe tell your family as well. Give Granny a call. Say Granny is an iPhone 6. Download put back of the net. Get it on the phone. Get listening. And uh, that would be awesome. But thanks as ever for all your support.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, next week, as well as part two of our Steve Fletcher interview, we'll also be announcing the winners of the Back of the Net Awards. And there is going to be also the draw for the exclusive Money Can't Buy Eddie Had a Dream t-shirt. Now, soon you will be able to buy the T-shirt because on afcbpodcast.com, you'll be able to grab the T-shirt in our Cherries store. Now, the store is not only here to make sure you remain fully clothed in beautiful gear, but also the proceeds will also go to help this very podcast. So do take a look round about the end of the week. Exciting time, Sean. Yep, really exciting. And can't wait to see all you guys looking awesome in
2: your back of the net T-shirt. Now, that is it for the show. Sammy's gone. It may be, what, midnight in the UK, but Sam's still enjoying that scorching UK weather. So he's down the beach, got his towel out already, ready for tomorrow. For me, another day here in New Zealand. Oh, just go and look at some mountains for a while. Thanks for listening. Do subscribe to the show through your phone app if you can. And we'll be back next week for another episode of Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast.
0: North Korea.
2: North Korea. North Korea. Richie and Beyond Walker.